With Cardinal World Series champion Brad Thompson and Chris Ranji, I'm Randy Carricker. Great to have you with us in the Fast Lane on 101 ESPN. And we go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And ESPN's Tim Legler, kind enough to spend a few minutes with us. No games going on, but plenty of intrigue and interest in Last Dance, the ESPN documentary. Legs, thanks for taking some time with us today. How are you doing? My pleasure. Doing well, I guess. Doing as well as, as, as can be expected. Right? Everybody's going through something very difficult, but... The last dance at least gave us uh, some serious entertainment on Sunday night. It, it did for sure. And, Legs, I was interested from your vantage point. I mean, you're a contemporary. You're playing against uh, MJ. We're all starved for content there, but I always wonder about guys that played and kind of lived the life in general. But you were just as pumped up as all of us for it, huh? Oh, no question. Um, you know, yeah, my deck, my career basically was the decade of the 90s. I came into the league in 1990. I retired in 2000. So, Think about that during that time when I was in the league, Michael Jordan won six championships. If he doesn't decide to go play baseball for a couple years, uh, he probably wins eight straight. Think about that. So he probably gets eight rings in the 10 years I play in the league. So, um, yeah, I, I was, you know, looking forward to watching this because I have so many memories of, you know, when I played, but to be able to take me back to that time and virtually every single person that I saw for those two hours on Sunday night in the first two episodes, I know personally, you know, every reporter, every player that commented, every broadcaster, you know, it, it, was, it was phenomenal to relive that. And the memories just came flooding back of what that time was like and how electric uh, the league was, how electric he was. You know, I, I said something on Twitter yesterday that he reminded me um, with some of the shot making that you saw on Sunday night in those first two episodes, like the ridiculous body control, hang time, the way he could maneuver the basketball in the air, even against great defense, and still find a way to, to, you know, to get a shot up to go in. And we were watching a lot of that on Sunday night. And, and I said, you know, this is the most electric player that's ever stepped foot on a basketball court. I might take it a step further. I don't know that there's ever been a, a more electric athlete, period, um, that's ever done anything in sports besides Michael Jordan. I mean, and that first two episodes gave you a taste of that. And the thing that I'm so grateful for is this next generation. There's a lot of young kids out there that you've heard of Michael Jordan, obviously, and they've looked up some stuff on YouTube probably over the years, and they know that he's considered the greatest of all time. But being able to now watch this for 10 hours is going to give, I think, a far greater appreciation to that younger generation that never got to see him play live. So when you're on the floor with him, I mean, obviously you have a job to do, but did you ever find yourself in moments just kind of watching in awe? And I mean, you can't, I don't think you can allow that expression to show, but in, in your mind, were you ever thinking, oh my God, this guy? You know, I think, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he, I mean, he had 50, he had a 50 point playoff game against us when I was in Washington. We played them actually. So this series is based on the 97, 98 season. We played them in Washington uh, in the postseason the year before. So at the end of the 97 season, we played them in the first round. He had a 50-point playoff game in that series. And, um, yeah, there are times when, you know, you never, like, like, go into the game or you run out on the floor and you're like, oh, you know, you're looking at a guy just two and all of them to compete against him. You never feel that because everybody that's there, you know, you feel like you belong to You look forward to that challenge. And I always looked at it. Like, there is nothing Michael Jordan could ever do to me he hasn't done to a 1,000 guys. So I relish the challenge because if you can guard him well, you know, for a four-, five-, six-minute stretch, contest his shots, make him miss a few, you know, you come out of the game, you're a hero. You know, you're, you're not worried about Michael Jordan lighting you up. He lights everybody up. So I look forward to the challenge, but there's definitely times when I played against him 
when you just know that he's doing something special, like he's going off. And particularly when he did it in Chicago Stadium, because you know, I was never in a building that loud uh, in my life. And that environment that he had there, by the time he even came out for starting lineups and that iconic music would play, and then he was the last guy introduced, you, you literally couldn't communicate to the guy that was shoulder to shoulder with you, you know, down on the other end of the court as you were watching introductions. Um, and then anytime he would go on one of those runs, the, the, the just how loud that building got, you couldn't help but notice that this guy is doing something special right now. So, yeah, you have a respect and an admiration and an appreciation in the moment, but certainly you know, you're not so in awe that you're not able to go out there and, and really take on the challenge and relish competing against them. Tim Legler with us in the fast lane on 101 ESPN, and you just used the word that I want to use there, competing, because he was such a fierce competitor. And that must have been a real shock the first time you faced the guy, that he is just such a relentless competitor. Well, you know, we played the same position, so when I was in a game, if he was on the floor, that's typically who I was going to have to guard. And I think about some of the guys I guarded in my career at the two-guard position, and I'll give you an example of a few of those guys. You know, Reggie Miller, Clyde Drexler, uh, Mitch Richmond, right? Three Hall of Famers, Mm -hmm. three all-time great two-guards. And you think about how hard it was to guard those guys for different reasons. Reggie Miller, you know, running around 100 miles an hour using screens, you know, such a great shooter, so deadly from deep. Clyde Drexler, ridiculously big and strong, and athletic, so his first step was almost, you know, indefensible. And then Mitch Richmond, you know, he could post you, he could take you out to the three, he could beat you off the dribble. He just had the whole package. So I think about some of these guys I've guarded, but here's where Jordan was different. All of those guys I just mentioned, at some point when you were on the court guarding them, there was going to be a time, you know, four or five possessions in a row maybe even, where that ball was going to be going somewhere else. You know, Clyde Drexler was going to throw it into Hakeem Olajuwon, and he was going to spot up, and you could take a breath, and you could sort of like, okay, I can finally relax for a second because they're going through somebody else. Same thing with Reggie Miller. The ball was going to go into Rick Smith. The ball was going to go somewhere else, and there were times he was going to be spotted up. That wasn't the case with Michael. Every single time down the floor, he was going to aggressively cut toward the ball in an effort to catch it in a scoring range, and when he got it, he was going to try to go on you. And if you turned your head for a second or you relaxed for a second, he was going to back cut you at that lightning quickness, and they were going to throw it up somewhere that you couldn't defend. So he was the one guy I played against in my entire life that I never had a sense of being able to relax, and that's where the relentless pressure came from Michael Jordan. And it was all built around his competitiveness and his you know, desire to just go at you and to attack and to be the best player on the floor. And so you never got a chance to take a breath when you were guarding him. And I think for me that really defines why he was so different than everybody else I ever played against. So with that being said, I mean, how do you even, and I'm thinking about uh, specifically in like a postseason, right? Uh, my, my background is baseball. Before a series, you go in and say, all right, this is the guy, whoever it is. Uh, this guy is not going to beat us. You know when you're playing the Bulls, it's going to be MJ. So how do you game plan for that? Do you just say, look, MJ is probably going to get his. Let's focus on Pippen. Let's focus on, on Rodman. I mean, how do you go in? What are those conversations before you play the Bulls in the postseason like? The biggest thing that you dealt with when you're playing the Bulls in, ter- in terms of guarding Michael Jordan, you know, every team was going to come up with 
a double-team scheme for that particular game. And everybody does it differently. And, and it depends on where he's going to catch the ball on the floor. That's going to determine a lot, a lot of times where the double-team is going to come from. So that's about all you can do from a game plan standpoint is there are certain spots on the floor that if you let guys be, uh, play him on an island, you know for a fact he's going to score, get fouled, or at least get off a quality shot. And so he's going to gut your defense. So, therefore, you have to come up with the game plan. And in the triangle offense, there were certain places on the floor he could catch it. It was a little bit more advantageous to go double-team him. Other times, other places, when he would catch it at the elbows, turn and face, you can't double-team a guy from that spot because he just sees the whole floor. And he's only you know, at the 18-foot range, so every pass is going to be a scoring pass. So, you know, you could tighten up and tweak how you were going to hit him with double-teams, but for the most part... All you could really do was just pray you could make him work for it. You knew he was going to get to a certain number. I mean, the guy led the league in scoring. I don't even know how many times, but I think he led the league in scoring in every single one of his championship years. And I think he may, might have done it eight, eight or ten times overall. You knew he was going to get to 30 or 35 to 40. You just hoped that he didn't have one of those nights he was going to go for 50-plus, for 60, to have one of those nights where literally the entire game is controlled by one player. If he was going to go for 35 or 40, all you can do is hope that you're taxing him a little bit and making him work a little bit harder than maybe some other teams so that he can maybe feel it when you get to the important moments in the fourth quarter if you're still in the game. And that's really all you can do with a guy like that because he's too quick, he's too strong, he's one of the best mid-range jump shooters you know, the league's ever seen, which means even when you defend him well, he could get to that spot on the floor, elevate and if you're draped on him, with, and I used to try to get my hand right up between his two hands when he shot it and put it right over the front of his nose and try to at least obscure his vision. And he's going to make a really high percentage of those shots. Kobe Bryant, same way. There's only so much you can do. You can't get dejected. You can't get defeated. You run down the floor and you think about, I'm going to play him exactly the same way the next time. And you hope it's just one of those nights the percentages work in your favor. Because that 97-98 team that's featured in the documentary mostly was as great as it was and as famous as it was, we got to know a little bit more about the personalities involved and and not just after the fact, but you heard some of the stuff that was going on during um, the time that team was playing. Was that the kind of thing, like the inner workings of the Bulls team then, were you guys aware of it, or were you just so focused on your own jobs you didn't know what things were like uh, with the Bulls and, and the tensions and the dynamics going on? No, honestly, you know, and that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this whole thing for me is, no, a lot of that stuff you didn't know on the outside. Um, and, uh, you know, some of it probably was reported, you know, back at that time. But we're going back over 20 years ago. So I think to myself, you know, was, did I hear that on the news? Was that on SportsCenter back in the day? You know, did I read that? And, and it's possible, I guess. But if I did, it was fleeting. I've forgotten most of it. So now for me, this is going to be fresh in, in getting into some of the interpersonal dynamics and conflicts and some of the things that they had to work through. I think it's really fascinating uh, to watch that component of it because you think a team that has that much success, you wouldn't think would have these kinds of, of interpersonal conflicts that they had to overcome. And yet here we are, we're two episodes in, and you saw a bunch of that uh, on those two hours on Sunday night. And obviously we're going to have more of that coming up this Sunday because they start talking a little bit more about Dennis Rodman, who was barely mentioned 
in the first one. But to, to give you a sense of, of, of how it, you know, that, what that team was like, guys, it, it, was, it was very similar, I think, to um, imagine the, when they first came to the United States and they would roll into a city to do a concert. That's kind of what it felt like when the Bulls were coming into your building. There was a completely different buzz and vibe all day of the game as you're driving into the game, once you got to the arena, once you ran out onto the floor, even in, even on your home court, there was a completely different feeling in the building that you knew you were about to take on something that was an all-time great team. And you didn't feel that way about any other team that you played against. So that vibe and that electricity was definitely something you picked up on. But some of these things that these guys had to work out and hash out and iron out behind closed doors, no. I mean, some of this is going to be new for all of us, even the guys that were playing during, the, during that time. Legs, that was awesome. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. We really appreciate it, and we're enjoying the documentary as you are. Be safe, and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Will do, and if you guys want to talk about any more episodes down the road, feel free. Hey, give me a ring. We'll do it. Thanks, Legs. Appreciate right. it. You got it. That's Tim Legler, ESPN, with us in the Fast Lane on 101 ESPN. Next up, Meet will tell us what's trending from the Twitter machine. That's coming your way in the Fast Lane.